Father, thank you for your great love and grace for each of us. Thank you that it is a reckless love, that, Lord, you were not unwilling to give everything to save us. I pray as we, we look into your word tonight, God, that we would see that love, that we would draw closer to you. Father, that we would hear your voice and that your spirit would be our teacher. May you be glorified by our time together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we ended 1 Samuel a couple weeks ago, uh, we saw there was a few things taking place. Uh, David, the Philistines were going to go to war with Israel. David was going to go out with the Philistines, and the Philistine Lord said no. So David went back to the town that uh, the king Achish, it was Achish, right, gave him uh, Ziklag. When he got back, everybody was gone. All their stuff was gone because the Amalekites came up and raided the land, not only Ziklag, but other places in southern Judah. So David went, they got all the stuff back by God's grace. Um, they get back to Ziklag, and then we get to the last chapter of 1 Samuel where Saul dies in the battle between the Philistines and Israel. Saul and his sons and the Philistines have a pretty, uh, what's the word, uh, um, sound victory over Israel at the time. Now, by way of reminder, Saul had been hit with an arrow during the battle. And he was rightly concerned that if the Philistines got a hold of him while he was still alive, that they were going to torture him. So he asked his armor bearer to kill him. But the man, the armor bearer said, uh-uh. Fair enough. So Saul fell on his own sword, and his armor bearer did the same. By the time the Philistines found Saul, he was dead. However, falling on his sword is not what killed him. Sometime between him falling on his sword, what we read about in uh, at near the beginning of chapter 31, uh, he fell on his sword in verse 4, and it says in verse 8, it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul. So sometime between him falling on his sword and so in verse 4 in, in chapter 31 of the last book and verse 8 of that book when the Philistines found his dead body, what we're going to study in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel took place. So that's just to kind of help you get a bit of a timeline in there. Uh, this all takes place three days after David returned to Ziklag from recovering everything that had been taken. So in chapter 30, he gets back to Ziklag. The next day, we get chapter 31, Saul's death. And first, or 2 Samuel chapter 1 is now three days later. Does that make sense? Give or take? Don't ask me what year it was. I don't know. 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, just like 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel was written roughly about the same time. However, while the prophet Samuel made vast contributions to the actual writing of 1 Samuel, uh, he didn't make any contributions to the writing of the second book that bears his name because he's dead. And I know Samuel was a talented guy, but it's really hard to write when you're dead. 
Thank you, Grayson. Glad Grayson's here tonight. Rest, he ain't laughing. Uh, but as we mentioned, there were several other authors, um, including Gad and, oh, I have a note about it in here somewhere. Give me a second, because I'm really old and I forget things. Um, Gad was one of them, and there was another one, and I don't remember who it was. Oh, well. Uh, but there were several other authors who were attributed to uh, the later portions of 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel as well. Nathan, Nathan that's what I said. Nathan would have been the prophet that rebuked David for his sin. We're going we're gonna to get into all of that a little bit later on. 2 Samuel's got some good stuff in it. Uh, you know, the sin with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, um, you know, Solomon eventually is born, the stuff with Absalom when he rapes his sister and David doesn't want to be mad at him, so his brother kills him. And, I mean, it's just, no, yeah, Absalom was the brother. He kills his brother for raping his sister Tamar. I mean, Second Samuel has got some goods in it. We should start reading it, huh? Some bads. Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David stayed two days in Ziklag on the third day. Behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people have fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? The young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa. That's not why he was there. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Now, I can only imagine how much it would hurt to have fallen on your... There, there's arguments about the translation, whether it was a sword or a spear, because it said this guy said spear, but it said he fell on a sword in the last chapter. Anyways, it doesn't matter. But I can only imagine how painful that would be, right? You've been hit by an arrow. You're already mortally wounded. You're aware of this. So you fall on your own sword in an attempt to end your suffering, and you still don't die. And the possibility is, because of the way the wording is here, um, that, uh, hold on, I'll find it. Oh, he was leaning on his spear. That's up there in verse 6. 
So what that sounds like to me is whether it was sword or spear, he probably propped it up between a couple of rocks so he could fall on it. And he fell on it and was kind of dangling there. He wasn't on the ground. That's what it sounds like to me. That sounds pretty bad. And so this guy comes upon him and Saul says, please kill me. And according to this man's story, that's what he does. He said, so I killed him and I brought his crown and I brought his bracelet. Now, here's the deal. When he said, I, I, there are people who argue that this guy was lying or whatever. I, I don't think he had any reason to lie, um, but I, except for why he was on Mount Gilboa. Most likely, since the war was between the Philistines and the Israelites, and this man was an Amalekite, he was probably up there to feed. Before the Philistines could come back and strip all the bodies of their armor and their weaponry and any, you know, maybe jewelry or money purse, whatever the, the people might have had on them, this guy and probably several of his, his friends they were up there first, stripping down the bodies to, you know, make a quick buck. And he just happened upon Saul. Now, why Saul was wearing his crown in battle, some people suggested it was actually a helmet that had a gold circlet around it. Um, but it says crown. And the bracelet, these things were, of course, to indicate that he was the king. Um, anywho. An interesting note. Did anybody catch where this guy was from? He was from Amalek. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was commanded by God to wipe out the Amalekites. He failed to do so. And then he justified it. He said, you know, oh, well, no, no, we just saved the best for the, for the, um, uh, sacrifice to the Lord and, and he goes well what about the king you left King Agag alive now at the time we made the connection to the book of Esther because Esther is actually a descendant of the house of Kish so she, she, was, she was a relative of Saul um, and Haman was a descendant of Agag if Saul had done his job done what he was commanded to do and wipe out the Amalekites well, the book of Esther wouldn't have happened. Now, whether you call it irony or poetic justice or whatever, because Saul was going to die no matter who happened upon him, I find it very interesting that it was an Amalekite who actually ended his life. If he had done his job, there wouldn't have been any Amalekites around. Verse 11. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And so we see David mourning for Saul, mourning for Jonathan, for the loss that Israel had endured, and they fasted until even evening. And so we see David's heart. Though Saul had mistreated him, run him out of the land, run him away from his home, 
uh, lied to him repeatedly, gave his wife to another man and attempted to kill him on multiple occasions, David still loved him. And news of Saul and Jonathan's death was heartbreaking for him. Now, I can't help but draw a parallel here between David's love for Saul and God's love for us. We have, and at times still do, treat God much the same way that Saul treated David, ultimately with contempt. However, God still loves us with an unconditional love. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, it's explained to us beautifully. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. It's beautiful. I had someone come to me once, this was a few years ago, and they were trying to make the argument that God only loves people who are saved. And I thought that was an interesting statement. I'm like, well, where do you get that from? Well, it's clear in Scripture. Okay. From which Scripture is it clear? And, And some of the Scriptures he brought up were we're all around, basically, in the epistles where we're called the beloved of God. Like, yeah, but there's other scriptures that talk about God loving us beforehand. Where? I'm so glad you asked. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 5? And I shared that scripture with this person, and I said, see? God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I said, he loved us to sacrifice his son while we were still sinners, not after we were saved. I said, God's unconditional love is for every human being. Now that doesn't mean every human being will respond. But God's love is universal. So anyways, that was an interesting conversation. But I see, I just see that parallel there with David because we gave God no reason to love us. And he did anyway. David had no reason to love Saul and he did anyway. Verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I'm a son of an alien, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Uh Uh-oh. And David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now here, I wrote a question down. 
Have you ever gone to talk to somebody with the idea that you were bringing them good news? I'm thinking that this is what the Amalekite figured. He probably thought, you know, I'm going to go tell David that Saul's dead, that I killed him. Now David can, you know, become king. Look at how awesome this is going to be. I'm going to be set for life, right? Maybe David will make me one of his men. And David looks at him and says, how dare you? Looks at one of his guys and says, execute him. I kind of would like to see the size of this man's eyes at that moment. Like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. I, I, I thought this was good news. Nope. Not good news. It escalated very, very quickly. Um, an interesting thing to think about is First Chronicles 16.22 uh, this is repeated in Psalm 105, verse 15. Actually, it's quoted in Psalm 105, verse 15 from First Chronicles 16. Uh, it says this, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? We need to be careful of how we speak of those God has called to his work. Um, there are times, right, because we, we do have to have a good balance with this. There are times when somebody is a false teacher or somebody is a false prophet or somebody is abusing um, God's people that we, we have to call that out. That's religious hypocrisy. Jesus called out religious hypocrisy time and time again. But what I think we see far too often is people tearing apart other servants of God well, just because they do it differently. You know, um, I'll give you an example. There, there is a, a gentleman I know who is a King James only guy. And he just can't get over the fact that I'm not. Well, the King James Version is the only English version of the Bible we should use. I'm like, dude, there's like 200 English versions of the Bible. Yeah, some of them are pretty bad translations, but... There's a lot of other versions of the Bible, and, and for the most part, they're pretty reliable. I don't see how it has to be King James only. Some people, we're going to sing hymns from a hymnal with a piano. And if you don't do that, are you really worshiping God? Yes. Jesus asked us, uh, told us that he was seeking for people who would worship him in spirit and truth. You go back and read John chapter 4. He doesn't say anything about hymns. It's amazing. Right? We could start going down that list. Because sometimes there is going to be disagreement on non-essential issues. That's no reason for division, and it's no reason to put other people down. When it's just something of that nature. Remember this quote. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Or in all things, love. Now, music, the way we dress on Sunday morning, whether you use a King James, New King James, ESV, or NIV to preach from, right? Do you have chairs? Do you have pews? This is all non-essentials. It's all non-essentials. I'm never going to divide over non-essentials. And then some of those things... There's even certain doctrinal issues that fall under non-essentials. I'm never going to divide over eschatology. 
right? I think the rapture happens before the tribulation. You think it happens some other time? Great. I can't wait for you to be wrong. You know? And uh, Ralph and I were talking about that a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, brother, if you're wrong and I'm right, awesome. I said, when we get there, I'm not going to brag about it. I said, if you're right and I'm wrong, when we get there, I don't think you're going to brag about it. We're not going to care because either way, we got there. <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, in non-essential things, I'm, I'm just not, not going to divide over that. But, but, there are some essentials that we have to divide over. There, there just are. And I hate that. I hate that it happens. I hate that I've, I've, there's been times I've had to take that stand. And it's unpleasant, but there are some essentials. If somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, good for you. But I don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. You're not a Christian. Because Jesus said he was the only way to heaven. You believe in something else. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe the Bible is God's word. Sorry. Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth of his word in John 17. Word's pretty important. You know, and so we could start going down. There's a few things on that list. I'll kind of put on that list people who are false prophets. I'm sorry, if you're out there making prophecies on YouTube and they're all not coming true, yeah, you're not, mm, that's a problem. Now, if you somebody on YouTube making prophecies and they're coming true, well, then we might want to listen to that guy. But I'm just saying, you know, a lot of them, they're a little off base, or a lot off base. You know, and you have some people out there that, that, that they all they want to talk about is how you should give money to their ministry, you know, because they need a second private plane. You guys heard that one. It's my favorite one over the last couple of years. Jesse Duplantis. I have no problem saying his name because he's not a Christian. I'm sorry. He has a he had one 14 million dollar private jet. And he told his congregation that he needed a second one in order to spread the gospel even further. Follower of Christ would not do that. A servant of God would not do that. I just Jesus would have strong words for him. And if he doesn't repent, he's going to have a rough time on Judgment Day. Right? So there are times we have to call those things out. But because it's a stylistic difference or because, well, I'll tell you a story. And this this will illustrate it. And then I promise to move on because we have more to cover. Um, years ago, we served under a pastor. I've told stories about this person before. That's why I've never used their name. Um, that... We were part of a church plant with this with this person, and there was somebody else sent out from the same church that sent them out to replant another church. So on the Sunday that they replanted the other church, um, he went and visited because he wanted to encourage the pastor. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And he said, there was just a bunch of old people in there that were complaining about the service, and they just need to die and go be with Jesus. I was, and I was just in shock that he would say that. I mean, our church is mostly older folks. I'm grateful. I don't care how old you are. I'm just happy you're here. Or how young you are, for that matter. Um, 
you know, I, I just, that just boggled my mind. That's, how, how could you say, wow. Anyways, that was a long time ago. I shouldn't still be angry about it, but I am, a little bit. Verse 17, then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain. On your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. I am just, oh, sorry, Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you. My brother Jonathan, you have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing that of a woman. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. So David's song of lament over Saul and Jonathan. Now, uh, I had to kind of geek out a little bit because there's a book mentioned here in verse 2, the book of Jasher. And if you are familiar with the table of contents of your Bible, you know that the Bible does not contain a book of Jasher. Um, it's a book that is not included in the canon of Scripture, although it is mentioned several times. Uh, for example, it's also mentioned in Joshua 10, 13, uh, apparently, it was a book of, uh, a kind of a book of psalms and wisdom, a little bit like psalms and proverbs, according to tradition. There are other times in scripture when other works or writings are mentioned that we do not have in the canon. And when I say the canon, that does exclude, exclude the Apocrypha. Um, the Apocrypha was the Roman Catholic Church's answer to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses and people started breaking away from the Catholic Church, they added the, it's 13 books, right? Anybody? 13 books of the Apocrypha? Um, because they wanted to use those books to justify some of the things that they were doing that the Protestant Church was protesting. Uh, unfortunately, the word Apocrypha means doubted truth. They weren't included in the canon of Scripture for over 1,200 years up to the time that they were actually added in sometime in the 1600s. So that's why we reject them now. Interesting history in some of the apocryphal books, but they are not scripture. So when I say canon, I mean the 66 books we hold in front of us. So some of these other books include the book of the wars of the Lord is mentioned in Numbers 21:14, the book of Samuel the seer, the book of Nathan the prophet, and the book of Gad the seer, uh, all are mentioned in 1 Chronicles 29. The Acts of Rehoboam. 
and the chronicles of the kings of Judah. 1 Kings 14.29. 1 Kings 4.32 tells us Solomon wrote a thousand songs, but we only have two of them. They're recorded in Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. Uh, in the New Testament, we also have extra-biblical sources. Uh, Paul quoted the Greek poet Epimenides. Say that three times fast. In Titus 1.12, he quoted Epimenides again, and he quoted another Greek poet by the name of Aratus um, when he was preaching at the Areopagus in Athens in Acts 17. Right? So we keep in mind that all scripture has been breathed out by God as he inspired the scriptures through the Holy Spirit. Uh, so as a result, that's in 2 Timothy 3, by the way, uh, God directed these writers to refer to or quote from non-biblical sources. This does not mean these sources should be included in the Bible. If we needed them, we would have them. We don't need them, so we don't. Now, on a, a little bit of a separate note, in the 18th century, there was a guy who claimed he found the long-lost book of Joshua. Right? The book that's mentioned in the Bible. In Joshua and here in 2 Samuel. I found this great book of Hebrew wisdom. The book of Jasher. The problem was he wrote it himself. So it made it much easier for him to find. But he wrote it himself. Um, not only was it quickly proven that his book was a work of forgery, um, and then he was discredited and the book was discredited. Um, but yeah, there was a guy. But there's some people who still will claim that the book of Jasher was found in the 18th century. No, it wasn't. There's another work called the book of Jasher by a guy named Benjamin Rosenbaum. Now, here's the interesting thing about this work. It's a work of science fiction, and Benjamin Rosenbaum never tried to pass it off as a book of the Bible. <laughs> he wrote it as a book of science fiction, published it as a book of science fiction. It was never meant to be passed off as a book of the Bible. So we get into David's song. We're not going to get to chapter 2, folks. Sorry. I just don't think that's going to happen. David's song. So David speaks in verses 19 through 22 of not proclaiming this among the Philistines, calling for a curse on the mountain where they died, and noting that Saul and Jonathan did not run, but died in battle. So uh, it's, it's kind of cool what he talks about, right? He goes, proclaim it not, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, let the daughters, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Right? He doesn't want the Philistines rejoicing over the death of Saul. And then he notices, um, let there be no dew or rain upon you, this mountain of Gilboa. Um, when the Jewish people returned in 1947, uh, they have reforested Israel. They have planted millions upon millions of trees over the last 70 plus years. Um, well, I guess that would be 75. It was 75 years in 2022. Anyways, um, They've replanted millions of trees, but there's one section on Mount Gilboa where trees won't grow. Suggested, right? We can't prove it. It's suggested that it's where Saul died because David called a curse down 
upon that part of Mount Gilboa because that's where Saul died. Now, again, we can't prove that, right? We're not going to take that to the bank. But it's interesting to think about. He talks about his shield not being anointed with oil. So this was something interesting I learned that I did not know before I studied for this. They used to pour oil on their shields. Have you ever seen a boxer getting ready or an MMA fighter? What do they slather themselves with? Vaseline or oil to make it so the opponent's glove will slide off of their face. Right? Good plan. Same idea. They would anoint, they're not anoint, but, but cover their shields in oil so that when an enemy swung a sword, it would glance off the shield. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, but I do think it's so amazing. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. In other words, and you know, we know Saul was a rotten guy. He had issues. He was told the night before this battle, remember the witch of Endor? He was told he was going to die the next day. What did he do? He went to battle anyway. So you can say whatever you want about Saul, and maybe this meant that he had a little bit better of an end than he might have, but knowing that he and his sons were going to die, he went out to battle anyway. That's pretty gutsy if you ask me. Reminds me of a scene from Lord of the Rings. What scene? Not enough men have come. We don't have the numbers to meet the armies of Mordor in battle. No, but we'll meet them nonetheless. King Theoden at Dunharl after Aragorn went, went to follow the paths of the dead. Yes, come on. I haven't used a, a Lord of the Rings illustration in a long time. You're welcome. In verses 24 through 27, David calls for, um, or sorry, verses 23 through 27, he calls for, uh, um, well, he speaks of the strength of Jonathan and Saul and their unity in life and in death. Uh, he calls for the daughters of Israel to weep over them um, and talks about how the mighty have fallen. And then finally, he mentions at the end of it, that he was distressed for the loss of his brother Jonathan, saying, you've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was as wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. Um, I have mentioned this before, that David and Jonathan, there are some who use the relationship between David and Jonathan to justify homosexual relationships. You see, David and Jonathan were clearly gay lovers, so homosexuality is okay. Uh, if anybody ever says that to you, ask them to, uh, to show you in the Hebrew where that's true, because that's not what it says. Their love was a brotherly love. Yes, they were close. Yes, they cared deeply for one another, but... Um, as we're going to find out, if you haven't figured it out already, David liked the ladies, not the men. And Jonathan had kids of his own. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's anyways, uh, just absolute, as they would say, absolute poppycock, if we were English. Because th that wasn't it. They were close, and they loved one another. But 
there was nothing else beyond that. Um, in chapter 2, which we're going to get to next week, well, I thought we'd get there, but um, we're not. In chapter 2, David becomes king, but only of the southern kingdom. We're going to look at that and talk about um, really the, the, the beauty of God keeping his promises. And then on top of that, we're going to see essentially um, a civil war break out. Because uh, Abner, the son of Ner, sets up Ishbosheth, one of the one of Saul's kids who didn't die in the battle as king, and yeah, there was civil war for the next seven and a half years. Very unfortunate. But we'll get to that next week um, because, yeah, we, we just don't have time anymore. Because there was too much to talk about in chapter one, and I'm okay with that. So, uh, until next week, let's pray. Father, we love you. And I thank you for your word and how you teach us these beautiful things. And um, we see David's heart that he loved a man who, who just treated him so horribly. And how that shows us your heart because you love us. And I thank you, Lord, that we're going to see you fulfill your promises to David. And hopefully that will be for each of us a reminder that you will fulfill your promises to us. Lord, I pray that you would watch over us the rest of this week with whatever it is we need to do. Over the next few days, I pray you would bring us back together on Sunday to continue to worship you, to fellowship, and to care for one another as you love each of us and love each of us through our church. May you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name.